Welcome to Trial by Data, presented by Litmus Health, a podcast exploring the data-driven technologies and strategies shaping the future of clinical trials. Each episode, we cover the most pressing issues and questions facing researchers and clinicians today in an ever-changing landscape. We're proud to feature leaders and innovators in the field who are at the forefront of developing and using these data-driven approaches. Welcome back to Trial by Data, the podcast where we talk about the future of data-driven clinical trials. I'm Josh Jones-Dilworth, joined as always by Dr. Sam Bolchenbaum, co-founder and chief medical officer of Litmus Health. Our guest today is Catherine Ebon, a seasoned investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author. Her recent book, A Bottle of Lies, documents the story behind the production of generic drugs and the related risks for global health. We are very excited to have Catherine on the show today to dig into her recent work on the pharmaceutical industry and explore her deep knowledge of how generic medicines are made and manufactured around the world. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sam. We're so happy to have you with us. Let's kick off as we do each episode with a segment we call Informed Consent. I like to always ask the question, you used to do what? Tell us about one of your first jobs, whether it's in the industry or not. Sam, go first. Well... I can tell you about working at McDonald's, but it's not that interesting, although it was one of my first jobs. <laughs> but the, my first job probably related to industry was when I worked at a pharmaceutical company in Chicago. And I was in college, and I actually had the job of working with animals, with dogs, actually. And we were working on looking for ulcer drugs. And so we were uh, using the dogs to monitor how much gastric acid output they would have with these different ulcer drugs. And it taught me a couple things. It taught me, one, that the process of discovering and developing drugs was so much longer and more involved than I had ever ever imagined that like they would sit there and the chemist would come in and they would say, hey, we're going to tweak one of the carbons on this arm of the molecule. Let's try it. And they would do this day after day, month after month, <laughs> just to find a molecule that might work in these preclinical models, just to move on to not even human testing. So it really gave me an appreciation for uh, why drugs were so expensive and took so long to develop. And at the same time, how meticulous the process was for drug development. And, uh, and I love it's, it. It's been important ever since. Yep. I love it. Catherine, what about you? Well, just to throw a curveball out there, I used to be in the circus. That was what... Nice. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, I used to be in the circus. That's what I was planning on doing, and I was going to go to Ringling Brothers College until my parents intervened. I wound up going to Brown, but I really i am an accidental journalist. I did a tightrope and slack rope and clowning and trekking. <gasps> Wow. That's awesome. Can you, can you still do a slack line? It's been a long time since I've tried, but I did have excellent balance, which I suppose is good for this day and age of <laughs> very unstable life in the U.S. and around the world. Well, that's great. Oh, that is so awesome. I bet it was an excellent exercise too, wasn't it? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I loved every minute of it. And, you know, I sort of bring the spirit of the clown, I like to think about it, to my journalistic work, which is like you're never done exploring and you're never done asking questions. So, you know, if the clown climbs a ladder, even if they get to the quote unquote top, they're still going up. So I try to look at my approach to work and life in the same way. That's so awesome. Oh, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate you. My first job was sort of on the other side of journalism as a PR flack. I was a very teeny part, as I've told Sam before, of the team that helped put the third blade on the Gillette razor. It was a revolution. <laughs> That's great. 
So, so uh, that's, the one, that's the one that lifts before it cuts, Josh? Well, you know, it's really funny that he was either the CTO, like technology or CIO innovation um, of Gillette. And he was asked, he has a, a lot of like pretty incredibly talented physics majors, engineering majors, like really elite folks working for him. And he was asked, how do you get these folks to come work for Gillette? You know, it's like, it's not the job you thought you were going to want. And he said, well, I just tell them all that our job here is to get the sharpest possible object as close as possible to the human body without hurting anyone. And as an engineering challenge, that's fascinating. And they all say yes. So it, it's only three blades or is it like five now? Well, now it's like 10 blades. I don't know what it really is, but like, you know, and it vibrates and it has four strips that do, you know, it's like classic marketing stuff, more relevant to our conversation today. One of our other clients. And again, I was this like itty bitty part of a machine, but I learned a lot about crisis communications in those days because one of our clients was Merck and specifically Viox when Viox turned the wrong way. And to our team's credit, I think we convinced the client to do the right things at the right time, but it was, yeah, that was, that was really intense. And we learned a lot. And you would be sort of paid 500 grand a year, you know, to scenario plan for different things going wrong so that if it ever did, you just press play on a process and a communications plan and like a series of statements. And, you know, that introduction to the world of pharma from a crisis perspective was jarring. Get out of journalism and move over to uh, crisis communications, clearly. <laughs> it's lucrative. It's lucrative for sure. It was not for me at the time. I was making like $47,000 or $37,000, but you know, in New York, but that was fine. And it was great. And it was a great training that I still use today. And it's been a delight with Sam to return to pharma to try and do some good, do some good in the world and hopefully leave a legacy of positive change. So that's a great kickoff. And thank you for that. I appreciate both of you. Catherine, look, I just, I know the book was published like a year and a half ago to our audience. Um, the book that I am referring to is Bottle of Lies, which has been, <laughs> I think there's an awesome some quote about it that it's the jungle for the pharmaceutical industry, which I thought was just an excellent characterization. I know Sam is super excited to talk about it. Are, are you sick of talking about the book a year later or can you keep going? I can keep going. I can keep going. I mean, there have been moments where I was like, all right, I'm not sure I can do this for one more second. But you know what? The book is really relevant now in an age of right. That's so exactly I, what we were thinking. Yeah. So I can keep going. Well, I, I think, Sam, why don't you take it away? Because I know you have some, you're raring to go. And yeah, I'm interested to know what lessons the book teaches us for the well, here and now. We're recording here in very late January of 2021. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious because, you know, there's been so much made over the last, you know, 20, 30 years about how the FDA is on one hand slow to approve drugs, but on the other hand has created this extremely safe, I think, at least from my point of view, extremely safe climate in the U.S., that, that once drugs are approved through the FDA process, that they're considered to be safe. And I'm wondering how you see the FDA managing this continued pressure to do things faster, especially now in the time of COVID, and still trying to you know, prevent another thalidomide and you know, trying to make things through the safest process possible. So how is the FDA to manage these impossible expectations? Well, you know, first of all, I just uh, published a big story about the FDA in Vanity Fair. So your listeners can go check that out, you know, and what I found out is that 
a tsunami of VIP special requests was unleashed upon them during this COVID response. Mm -hmm. Pressure that was accelerated by the Trump administration and the quest for some miracle cure, and of course that has not yet been found. In an ideal world, the FDA has only a front door and every product and drug therapeutic diagnostic test that's gonna be evaluated by the FDA goes through that front door in an orderly system of review. But what the article exposes is that, you know, the back doors were breached, the windows were breached, and all of these line jumpers who wanted their uh, miracle COVID tests reviewed came sort of flooding in, you know, with recommendations from congressmen and White House staffers and Mark Meadows and Donald Trump and Ivanka, all to rapidly evaluate drugs and therapeutics. So there is a question of how the FDA can insulate itself from political pressure. And this last year was just a 24-7 case study in that problem. So in the absence of political pressure, though, do you think we would have two FDA, not approved, but FDA uh, sanctioned vaccines right now? Excellent question. I think the answer is yes. I don't think it is political pressure that brought this to fruition. I think it was medical pressure from a real crisis. So I do think yes. And I think that political pressure can, yes, on the cut both ways. It can be a positive accelerant, but it can also be a very negative accelerant. And one of the things that we saw this year was Stephen Hahn sharing a podium with Donald Trump to discuss product-specific announcements. And I think people who understand how the agency needs to work really raise the question, is that appropriate? It's one of the questions I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you probably are too, which is if, if we can assume that during COVID, there's been more, more of a willingness to push things along more quickly, whether it's through the trial consent process or through the data collection process, are we going to see that these new ways of doing things continue after COVID, even in the absence of that worldwide pressure. And I'm certainly hopeful that there are some things that will continue because, to be honest, the process of starting and conducting clinical trials has certainly been easier during this time in terms of regulation that I've seen. Right. Well, I mean, I think when the dust settles, we will look seriously at this, at the emergency use authorizations, which have a lower standard, something has to maybe be effective. And that has raised a lot of questions about judgment calls on hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir and convalescent plasma. So I think we will be looking at those issues for a long time. So you write about the plant inspection, and I'm curious, is is that just the tip of the spear when it comes to pharmacovigilance? I mean, is it's this whole supply chain, right? Where, you know, how long do the drugs sit on the loading dock? And how do you make sure nobody swapped out other drugs in place for the ones that you're selling? Does the entire um, supply chain need to be managed better than it is now? Oh, there's no question about that. You know, let me put it this way. I shouldn't be able to build a career writing books about this stuff. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. I should be well in, done. In in a, in a properly functioning drug supply, I should be put out of business. Mm -hmm. And the reason I uh, have tried but cannot stop writing about pharmaceuticals is because it's really like, you know, it's like the true crime beat. Yeah, it, it's a mess. It's a total mess. 
Catherine, is there anything that we can do to make um, more of a safe haven or to encourage more whistleblowing activity? You, you know, you're one of a very small number of people who have experience with that process, both from mm -hmm. a legal perspective and a journalism perspective. Sh surely there's more people who know more things that the public ought to. I'm curious to know what you think needs to happen in order for us to have more of these issues see the light of day. Okay, so that's a great question. Let me answer in a couple of different ways. So Bottle of Lies, the narrative of that book is built around an Indian whistleblower. They are a very rare breed in part because they don't live long. Dinesh Thakur, who is the whistleblower at Rambaxi, is incredibly courageous and basically risked his life to bring to light the fraud at Rambaxi. Mm -hmm. um, there are no legal protections for whistleblowers in India, and, and that's true in most countries in the world, right? And you think about it, more than half of the manufacturing for the U.S. drug supply is overseas. So as far as the whistleblowers, you know, who are witnessing fraud and other criminal activity overseas, it's extremely difficult for them to figure out how to get their findings and their observations heard and get them heard in a way that they will actually survive it. So, you know, Dinesh Thakur was a very rare person in that he had access to real documentation. He was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that his complaints were heard you know, and he wouldn't stop until he succeeded. So, and he, I mean, he sort of felt a moral imperative that superseded any sort of personal danger, it sounds like. Right. Now, move over to the U.S., right? The Rambaxi fraud, maybe it could not have happened in the U.S. because basically fraud was the company's business model. And as people said to me, in the U.S., you'd have hundreds of whistleblowers running to the FDA, you know, and there are legal protections for whistleblowers and financial rewards for whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is that. There is a better system. But look at a lot, the resolution of a lot of these cases. How many executives go to jail? None, you know? So there are financial costs to committing fraud, but are there actual costs of, you know, executives being frog marched to prison? Very few. Right. The, the risk reward equation still ends up sort of skewing in favor of fraud. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I think we would need to seriously examine our system of deterrence for these crimes. I'm curious to know, Sam, a couple, maybe a year and a half ago, wrote an op-ed for um, the news magazine Stat, of which I'm sure you're aware, Catherine. Oh, yeah. In it, he gave some um, pretty direct advice to the then incoming head of the FDA. And so I'm curious to know what both of you, given how the environment has changed, like, let's say I, I, Josh, am the new <laughs> incoming head of the FDA, God help us all. What advice do you have for me as sort of top three agenda items? You know, what do I need to prioritize in the here and now to make sure that the agency is fulfilling its duty to the American people? Okay, so I would say you need a system of real verification of drug quality. Company- Say more. Yeah, so company data does not cut it. And in fact, we are now 100% reliant 
on company data from overseas factories because we're not doing overseas inspections because of COVID. So where, you know, trust but verify, the verify part is super important. Why don't we have a system of testing? Why aren't these drugs tested, right? I mean, our whole drug supply is built on an honor system. So do you mean the test, not only the testing to prove, to validate the data from the drug companies, but is there also the option to test drugs once you've, you know, spot test them from the company to make sure they're what what they say they are? Yes, that is a huge gaping hole in our drug supply. So if there's drugs that are being imported from an external manufacturer, there's no process in the U.S. where those drugs go through some like uh, HPLC system where they actually test the drugs to see if they are what they say they are? Right. Not routinely. And that was, to me, the big shocker in in my reporting for Bottle of Lies. The approvals are based on company data, which is, I think I really demonstrated clearly, is riddled with fraud, and inspections, which for overseas plants are pre-announced. So what you wind up with is this stage set of compliance that does not reflect what is really going on inside these manufacturing plants. And so I assume the results are, at best, you have drugs that are maybe less effective than the they would be, but at worst, they could be harmful, I would assume. And are there noted examples of that happening? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the, oh, there are so many examples. Look at the all of the recalls around the Valsartan and the Losartan, uh, which contain carcinogen, NDMA, right? And the active ingredient were coming from plants in India and China, which had decided to move to a more cost-effective system of manufacturing that ended up sort of leaving these carcinogens in the drugs. This was flagged by an FDA investigator in a plant in China who recommended an official action-indicated sanction against the plant, and the bureaucrats in Maryland then downgraded that recommendation. So the plant skated, and one year later, it turned out, lo and behold, who could have guessed, uh, that there was all this NDMA carcinogen in the active ingredient. And do we, do we think people were, I mean, I, I know we obviously don't want those in the drugs, but do we think that people were harmed because of that? Yes, we know, we know people were harmed, yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Sam's I think- mind is blown. <laughs> He's just going to sign up for your recommendation to the FDA. He, he, we're all in. I'll give you one more example, which is the cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic figured out that their heart transplant patients who were getting switched to a generic immunosuppressant made in by an Indian company, Dr. Reddy's, when they were given that uh, generic tacrolimus, they suffered organ rejection and we're winding up back in the ICU. So that is to my point that there is a hidden cost. Well, so now you're hitting close to home. So when, you know, when, when my patients ask me, you know, when they get their chemotherapy, their oral chemotherapy, you know, like, should I get the, the should I get the Pfizer or should I get the generic? I, I always, my party line has always been, well, there's no reason to suspect the generic is any different. Should I be telling my patients something different? Uh-huh. I mean, because the the prices are often, as you know, starting know. very different. And some of these parents have to pay out of pocket for some of their kids' right. meds. And So th- here's the problem, which is our entire drug supply 
is built around the notion that there is no difference between a brand and generic or between different generics if they are approved by the FDA. And that approval means that they are equivalent. Now, as an FDA consultant put it to me, every cheddar cheese buying consumer understands that there is a difference between cheese whiz, craft, and artisanal cheddar, right? We get that. Mm -hmm. Consumers who go to a drugstore do not understand that there is a cheese whiz generic and a craft generic and an artisanal cheddar brand, right? And that is true. There are differences between generics. And doctors who have paid close attention to this know this to be true, right? So, so how do we figure this out? How do we get this information to consumers? You know, where is our Yelp of generic ratings? Mm. Right, because a lot of times the consumers, if the drugs say it's just not as potent or if there's some contaminants in there, they're never going to know. And, they're right. never, you know, and so without some sort of overriding body to do actual testing, it's, it, what it really sounds like is just that the generic approval process is fundamentally flawed. It is fundamentally flawed because it is built on an honor system without independent verification. And that's the FDA's ultimate responsibility then would be to fix that, I would assume. That's right. That's right. You know, but the FDA very much has, they like to talk about a culture of compliance, right? And that they are educating and working with these manufacturers to create a culture of compliance. Well, I can talk a lot about the culture of compliance that I saw in 10 years of reporting on this, you know, and in many companies and in many places, it does not exist. There is actually a culture of fraud. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty startling and it doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon, but it does seem like there's so, there's such a microscope. I mean, Josh and I are just going through the clinical trials process with our work. There's mm -hmm. such a microscope on the most obscure things that probably don't matter at all you know, like people filling out surveys or, you know, just the tiniest pieces of phase one and two clinical trials. And then at the other end, you have this fundamentally flawed process where none of that could even matter because you're getting a drug that is contaminated or doesn't work. It just seems so hypocritical or oxymoronic or something. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So, so what needs to be created and much finer minds than mine need to figure out how to do it is to incentivize quality right? There has to be some kind of market reward for high- right. That seems key. Like in our system, that's what works, right? Is bonuses for doing good or doing right. Right. But you can't possibly begin to implement that unless you have a baseline to understand it, are the drugs good or not, right? So you have to measure outcomes. Like, you know, data does exist to measure outcomes, right? In insurers or PBMs have information about readmissions. You know, could you link that to certain manufacturers? Because the doctors that I have, you know, talked to, they know that there are differences between different generics. Sam, what would be your advice to me as the incoming FDA chair related or something different? Well, I mean, it, to me, it, it sounds like this whole pharmacovigilance process is a huge problem, but it also is probably horribly political 
and is not going to be easily changed. So I think you have to figure out which parts of the system you might be able to fix and do something something fundamental like testing drugs when they're imported rather than try to reform the entire pipeline from the start. I just don't see how that could happen. And yet, the, and yet if you look at historically, you know, the last FDA chair got I mean, the stories are is that he had trouble with the e-cigarette industry. So, mm-hmm. like, how many layered problems can there be for the FDA to try to tackle without uh, breaking a system that seems tenuous to begin with? So, so there's another issue here, which is, you know, where are the consumer organizations on this issue? How come they have not been fighting for quality generics? Part of the reason mm. is because they have been fighting so hard for access to low-cost medicine Right. So if you come around talking about quality, you're somewhat greeted with suspicion because it's you're viewed as somehow having a big pharma agenda. Right. That you are secretly trying to undermine the access to low cost drugs. And what the people who understand this issue say (laughs) is that low cost drugs are not a bargain if they don't work. Yeah. It's funny that you even have to say that. Right. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. Catherine, are you are you working on a new book? Are you looking at a few topic areas? What's next? Well, so I'm a contributing editor with Vanity Fair now, and I am covering the COVID pandemic 24-7. So I've been really reporting on the federal response to COVID. And now, of course, we have a new administration that's in there trying to tackle this. So it's just, you know, it's an ever-changing story, but that's what I've been doing. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we wanted to take a quick break with our co-founder Daphne Kiss in a segment called The Dose, where Daphne gives us her take on the freshest news from the pharma industry. Daphne, take it away. Today, we'd like to talk about Amazon and its uh, various forays into the healthcare space. As we know, they attempted to form a company with their colleagues from J.P. Morgan and from Berkshire Hathaway. And the, originally, the idea, which was CEO'd by Atul Gawande, was to really innovate on healthcare and use their own companies to figure out solutions for for the hundreds of thousands of employees between these three companies. And that turned out not to be very successful. But of course, with the advent of COVID, now there's another opportunity for Amazon itself to get into the space. And in some sense, it seems a typical type of rollout for Amazon. Amazon Web Services really was the result of Amazon solving its own cloud and web services issues that they then realized was everyone else's problem and an enormous commercialization opportunity. COVID has now provided Amazon with the opportunity to leverage everything they know about us and the fact that we have become only more consumer and tech savvy to get us to participate with Amazon in our own healthcare in a way that was not possible probably 12 months ago or certainly 24 months ago. So we're now in a place where, you know, like financial services, like every other industry, increasingly moving into consumers' hands. And in some sense, it is, it's arguably the sort of culmination of what's happened. And it's also a new beginning where we as consumers are going to participate in a different kind of way than we have before. If you just take the idea of the doctor's visit, you know, people grew accustomed. It's part of a culture to go to the doctor's office and wait a long time for the doctor and to kind of put them on a pedestal and that they, you know, 
have a body of knowledge that we don't have. And it's the one place in our lives where we're often patient when we have to wait as a patient for care. And telemedicine is changing that quite a bit where there's a more, it's in some sense, just another meeting in which information is exchanged. And then hopefully our doctors still have the high level of knowledge that they had before, but the care is very different and doesn't require them physically examining us in certainly not all cases, but in many cases. And Amazon is picking up on that to facilitate that, both in terms of those meetings themselves, as well as the idea that all that information is conveniently stored. I mean, I would love to have my personal health records stored in the same way that Amazon currently stores the orders that I made 18 months ago. And that is something that Amazon is uniquely positioned to do. Whether they should do it or not, all the privacy, of course, issues that it raises are to be answered. But, you know, even during the pandemic, as people have been looking for vaccines, it has come up many times, like, let's let Amazon book our tickets, because, of course, they they understand the supply chain. They know how to facilitate it. And so in some sense here, we have the supply chain of our medical information, which is by law ours, but to have Amazon store that as well as what I ordered on Fresh last week would be pretty useful, I think. Should it be Amazon that does it? That's a different ethical question. And again, but so far they've done better in some sense protecting my privacy and security than some of the other players to whom I've given a bunch of my, whether it's financial, medical, or just personal information. So I think there's something very promising there. Again, the question of further centralizing Amazon's power is a different conversation, but the agility of a user experience that they've created, the world of health and our own participation in our health and well-being, I think bodes well for Amazon having a big role to play in this arena. Thank you for taking this dose with me. Over to you, Josh. What is one thing that you've been hearing and seeing and reporting on that you think most people don't understand or aren't paying attention to? I feel that we're all sort of stuck to our feed and texting about the new South Africa strain and, you know, feeling good about some of the first moves of the new administration. But sort of in many cases, I think the local vaccine rollouts are kind of a dumpster fire. Oh, they you are know, a I think fire. Most people are paying attention to that. What are we missing? Like if you had a megaphone to say a couple things to everybody all at once, what would you want us to understand or to know about? Well, you know, in a lot of my reporting on COVID, what I saw very clearly was the impact of ideology on the federal response. Mm -hmm. And so in the Trump administration, you know, there was a real belief, deep belief that markets can solve all problems. And so that led away from a coordinated federal response, right? And more towards a response of, we're going to let the states solve it and the market sort it out. That really, I think, for anybody paying attention, did not work. And there are many reasons why in a global pandemic where everybody around the world is vying for the same resources, 
you know, and beset by crisis that ordinary market mechanisms fail us. And I think we've seen that, you know, with with supplies, with PPE, with with every aspect of the pandemic. And now, of course, there is a huge discussion around equitable rollout of vaccines, which is a giant issue. Have you have you gotten vaccinated? No. I'm not I'm not eligible yet. I'm like fourth phase. Yeah. And what do you think of these stories that uh, you hear about people, you know, hanging out at pharmacies in the afternoon or, you know, nursing homes and and trying to grab a vaccine or people just is this just natural selection or um do you think it's all leading to people trying to abuse the system? Well, look, I mean there not a single dose of vaccine should be wasted, right? So if at the end of the day, there are extra doses that haven't been used, you know, I think looking around and grabbing someone to jab (laughs) is not a bad idea. Not a bad idea, right? Especially when you've got a new shipment coming and not enough refrigerator space to take it. Right. So, I mean, that certainly beats throwing it out. But, you know, there have been stories of really terrible abuse, you know, you know, millionaires getting on their private jets and flying to some state or county where they're not eligible and, you know, and getting it. And that's really wrong. But, you know, as far as random selection of individuals drifting past a vaccine site, I don't think that's so bad. Yeah, I mean, I think from my point of view at a university, the biggest uh, issues I see are just some of the stress between you know, teachers and students and healthcare mm-hmm. workers, and people can easily point fingers and say, well, that healthcare worker is working from home and I am in a classroom teaching. And so like, there's a lot of tension there that's not going to be relieved until there's a sort of a more major rollout. It seems to me there's two problems, right? One is just the fundamental design of the federal and subsequently the state level rollouts where it's sort of uh, everyone for themselves model, mm-hmm. right? Which which doesn't allow for any sort of central coordination, certainly, but it also doesn't allow for standards and data. It doesn't allow for us to be able to study or react to trends we're seeing in real time. Everyone's building their own software. But related to that, there's not like a central queuing algorithm. We have this idea of phase 1A and phase 1B, but I haven't really understood anyone, and maybe you've talked to some people who are doing this, Catherine, where, you know, if you have cancer, you get 200 points. If you're over 65, you get 100 points. If you have type 2 diabetes, you get 150 points. And, you know, we sort of let people, we manage the queue according to risk. It seems like, you know, as long as you're in phase 1A or phase 1B, you're kind of, you know, it's first come, first serve, which is not necessarily bad if we can plow through those phases pretty quickly. But it seems like, you know, in some cases, we're making decisions about risk that may result in life and death and you know that it's that it's so ad hoc is obviously frustrating yeah i mean it's these definitions are incredibly tricky so you know as somebody i was talking to said if you define you know essential worker okay the guys who work at the nuclear power plants right well there's one guy who actually is like managing the levers to prevent a chernobyl and then there's another guy who's doing the landscaping out front. So they both have the same badge, mm. but they have very different jobs. And how do you how do you parse that? Yeah. It's very difficult. And I think the the other thing too to your what you were saying, Josh, is when you start to put things on a list where other people can point a finger and say, "Well, you have type two diabetes because of X, Y, and Z." 
then you're sort of launching an, a whole nother line of, of attack that's that, right. that, that makes it even that's more right. difficult. I mean, it's so hard. That's to, right. So I think combined with what Catherine just said about parsing, you know, people's eligibility versus the healthcare aspect of it, it's almost impossible to come up with an algorithm that's equitable. One of my favorite posts about COVID was last summer by an NYU professor named Scott Galloway. And his point was sort of, I think that the article is titled COVID as vaccine, and we'll put that in the notes to this pod recording. And, and his point was sort of, you know, a, a vaccine, at least a traditional kind, gives you some of the disease so that you can begin to understand what it is and build up defenses. And, you know, it, COVID is horrible, and it seems worse and worse in many cases every day. But, you know, it's interesting to think about COVID as a forcing function for us to encounter these logistical issues, these ethical issues, these issues of data standardization, these issues of sort of drug approvals, so that, you know, the next time this comes around, we're sort of ready. We've already had the the experience of being exposed to a pandemic in a modern setting. And, you know, hopefully we don't just like get through COVID, we begin to build up sort of muscle groups, as it were, we can begin to build, build up sort of organizational and sort of civic immunity in a way that we just we didn't before, right. And it's to me, it's very interesting to think about the precedents that we're setting, some of the studies that will continue to happen and some of the things we'll need to put in place so that the next time this happens, it's not quite so severe. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, the this response has been preceded by infinite number of tabletop exercises, war games, mm-hmm. right? Crimson Contagion and all the like. So many of the problems that we've had were easily anticipatable. I mean, they were anticipated, right? And so I think the bottom line is you have to believe in science and you have to believe in government in order to launch a response that works. That makes perfect sense. Well, I'd like to, this has been an excellent conversation and I'd love to close with a segment that we call double blind when we close each episode. And so I'll ask each of you the following question. I love this one. Sam, Catherine, what is an opinion you hold that most people in your industry or in your domain would disagree with? Where are you an outlier? Where are you a contrarian? Where do you find yourself often in debate? So for me, one of the one of the opinions I hold is that there's tremendous good information to be to be received from families and patients' families, and I think we way underestimate the value of asking families and patients directly information about their treatment and about their course, relying instead on information that's buried in electronic health records. So for me, the future for collecting better data about about patients is in crowdsourcing. And I think that we're going to increasingly see the need to reach out to patients directly. And this is not a widely held belief, whereas many of my colleagues still would say, that's not well standardized data. You shouldn't use those data. You have to collect the data right from the health record. And I think this is gonna change over the next few years in a big way. Excellent. What about you, Catherine? Oh boy. Well, let's see. Can I volunteer something that I care passionately about to the exclusion of other things I should care more about? 100%. (laughs) I'm a a single-issue voter. I care about saving northern white rhinos. Hmm. That's my platform. I'm all rhinoceros all the time. And people who follow me are like, why does she tweet so much about rhinos? You know, 
we can't save rhinos, how are we going to save ourselves? There, there, that's it. I love it. Catherine, there's a gentleman named Corey Jakowski that I'll introduce you to who was about a month ago named National Explorer, uh, National Geographic rather, Explorer of the Year, who has spent the last three years doing really innovative AI work and specifically around this idea of synthetic data to um, save northern rhinos and white Sumatran rhinos or Sumatran rhinos and northern rhinos. And you should meet him and you guys will just have a great time hanging out. He's a fabulous guy. And I need to meet him. You must follow up. I will. We will make it happen immediately. That's excellent. Excellent. As for me, I think, yeah, I think for me personally, like I'm a lifelong Democrat and I'm starting to realize in certain ways that I hold positions about education that are not prominent in my party. And in particular, the idea that, that we should pay teachers more and fire them more often. And when we, when I say that there are like gasps and the whole discussion or rather sometimes a violent debate erupts. It's I'm not anti-union in any way, but I am a teacher. I teach in the MBA program and entrepreneurship here in Austin. And yeah, I think we, you know, if any, if we get nothing else from this pandemic, we should get like dramatically higher salaries for nurses and for teachers. Okay. (laughs) Like, like. So well-deserved, my God. I mean, I listen to, you know, my kids and their Zoom schooling and I'm amazed at the dexterity of their teachers. Yes. To To wrangle them on Zoom all day long. I would lose my mind. 100%. And I'm board chair of a nonprofit called Folio Collaborative, which is all about helping teachers become better teachers, sort of professional growth and development for teachers, you know, around the country. And, you know, I've had a a frontline seat watching teachers become and faculty just as wholes become more operationally and organizationally agile, you know, learn new ways of teaching, not just learn technology, learn how to change their curriculum in a fundamental way so that it's more asynchronous and learner driven, you know, just that it's like with everything else compressing six years years of evolution into six months. But yeah, I think we should pay teachers a whole lot more. But I also think that, you know, we should, we should expect more for the more that we're paying too. like, I think teachers should be paid like surgeons. And what they're doing is, is just as important and just as rigorous. And yeah, I would. And and, then yeah, if, if that ever happened in my lifetime, that would make me very happy. Well, I think it will be interesting to see what impact having a first lady who is a teacher will have. Yes. Totally, totally. And I, you know, I just generally think, I mean, to the point about our frontline healthcare professionals, like it's very much the same thing. Like, you know, it's why I resonated so strong, Catherine, with your point about incentivizing drug purity with, you know, money, basically. And I, you know, I'm always paying attention in the pharmaceutical industry and in the clinical research industry about who has the money, where are the profit pools. You have to do that as an entrepreneur, obviously, but it's right. just sort of, you know, it's, it, to me, it's an indication of where the incentives are aligned and not. Sam's favorite rant is about data standards and how if he, you know, if I say, Sam, what's one thing I could do, you could do with a magic wand um, just to change everything, he he would implement data standards because in a lot of his work, you know, the data is poorly positioned, it doesn't contain provenance, it's lost sort of some of its um, value or some of its structure and it needs to be, you know, repositioned and reshaped and sometimes that's not even possible and so being able to like speed, you know, clinical research and be 
able to have better outcomes, being able to compare, being able to, you know, test things that come in from abroad, but then being able to compare that to a standardized reference database, like the nature and structure of data is, is another one that really needs to happen in my opinion, but it's not profitable to do that today. And I think it's the same with teachers. Like it's, we pay them very little because we can, we pay nurses too little because we can, and you know, I'm eager to see what this administration does. Like if you follow the money at the end of the day, I think you can see it is an expression in many ways of what, what your values are. Well, this was, this was an excellent conversation. I really appreciate you. I had a fabulous time. I learned a lot and it's so generous of you to make time for us and to have the conversation. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate both of you. And to all of those of you listening, thanks for joining Trial by Data. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Trial by Data presented by Litmus Health. If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on SoundCloud and visit our blog at litmushealth.com.